0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality.
1: Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, January 30th, 2013, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson.
2: Hello, everyone.
1: Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, my friends. How are you? Good. Super. Welcome back, Jay and Bob. You guys were doing a bit of traveling last yeah. week. Yeah, we Jay and missed yep. it.
3: The extreme traveling Literally baby. Silent Bob last week.
2: <laughs> hey, happy Groundhog Day, everybody. Ooh, cool. Oh, oh awesome. I love yeah. that movie. That's,
3: yes. Yeah, exactly. We, we all eat a groundhog, right?
2: So yeah, uh, the most famous groundhog, of course, is Punxsutawney Phil, Pennsylvania, who, uh, for those of you not in the United States, in case you don't know what the hell this is, Every February 2nd, Phil pops his little rodent head out, and we see whether or not he sees a shadow. If he does see a shadow, that's supposed to mean that we're in for six more weeks of winter. And if he doesn't see his shadow, it means an early spring. And apparently Phil's success record is anywhere from 30 to 90 percent, depending upon whether you ask statisticians or the Punxsutawney Taurus Board.
3: (laughs) With with plus or minus 20 Mm percent margin Mm -hmm. of error.
2: I found this interesting. Since he started his predictions in 1887, presumably not the same groundhog. I think they're all just named Phil. But since Phil started predicting things in 1887, he's seen his shadow 99 times and he hasn't seen his shadow 16 times. And so it occurs to me if he keeps up that ratio his record is only going to get worse considering the ongoing
3: effects of global warming. Hmm. I I have a question here. Yes. Seeing your shadow, right? I mean, could you get more subjective than that? I even on cloudy days yeah. I cast a bit of a shadow, right? There's there's still light penetrating through the clouds that It is what pretty are we crazy. About
2: here? but well, apparently this this goes back to some superstitions. There, there are several other similar kind of holidays that have been celebrated throughout the millennia. Uh, and generally they're based on the idea that, you know, you're, you're right in the, the midst of winter. You know, Christmas is over. There's not much fun left until spring. And so you need something to get through the winter. And you do that by prognosticating on whether or not spring is going to come soon. And so the idea is that you pick a day, and if the day is nice, then that means it's going to be, uh, crap ahead. And if the day is crap, that means it's going to be nice sooner. I assume they, they, they went with that method because, uh, in early February, you've got a better chance of it being crap. So maybe you can be a bit more optimistic and say, well,
1: yeah, today is horrible, but, that means it's going to be spring soon. But February second was not chosen at random. It is the uh, the first cross quarter day of the year. In other words, the day that's halfway between two of the solstices. Mm-hmm. And and the mm-hmm. neo pagan Celtic calendar, the uh, all of the equinoxes, solstices, and then the cross quarter days were all special holidays. So February second is a is a pagan holiday. Right. Cool. Yep. Did you know that the groundhog is also called the woodchuck, the yes. land beaver, and mm-hmm. my favorite, the whistle pig? <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> what what is last pig? New to me. I like it.
4: Happy whistle pig day! <laughs>
1: Happy whistle pig day!
4: <laughs> that's that, that's so going to enter my lexicon. Oh yeah, <laughs> whistle pig. You whistle pig. Have you guys heard of Upgoer Five?
1: No. no. What is it? Uh, yeah.
3: is that a new series. Uh,
1: is that a new way to slap hands in an awesome way?
3: Is it like that Gangnam style dance? I hate that
1: thing. <laughs> it's the accessible way of describing the Saturn V rocket. So you guys oh, all know XKCD, right? right. right? Yeah, of yeah. course. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. very of funny course. science geeky cartoon. Wrote a uh, a cartoon describing a schematic of the Saturn V rocket using only the one thousand most commonly used words, uh, and so that's why it's called Upgoer Five, I guess. Saturn and rocket or whatever, or not and the 1,000 most – it's actually not the most – it's not the 1,000 most commonly used words. the 1,000 most commonly used words because okay. <laughs> apparently 1,000 is not in there either. Mm. Um, so this has become <laughs> a challenge now for science – scientists or science communicators. Can you write uh, an article or describe a scientific principle using only the 1,000 – most commonly used words. And uh, geneticist Theo Sanderson created a website called UpGoer5 where basically there's a text window and you can take text and clip it into the window and it will highlight every word that violates the thousand word rule. So you could check yourself against it. Uh, So so
4: what's the purpose? It's an impossible task, by the way. Why limit your vocabulary in such a way?
2: Well, to make it more accessible to the general public, presumably. It's more
3: of an exercise to sort of get yourself to become more concise when you do talk about these concepts, which can get extremely wordy and kind of overwhelm people.
2: Well, ironically, though, it's not, I don't think it's really about being concise because I've seen some, you know, some some switches that require 10 times as many words to replace one word that's not in the top 10 hundred. So I think it's more about just ridding yourself of words that, the general public may not understand and might cause them to tune out what you're saying. Oh,
1: well, you know, that's a slippery slope. <laughs> I, don't, I don't really like that.
3: No, those words don't count.
1: So I, I took a blog post of mine and put it in there to see how I did. And like every other word is highlighted.
3: Yeah, I was about to say, I. you're good at a lot of
2: things, Steve, but... I don't feel like that would be in your wheelhouse.
1: I don't think that I'm
3: looking at this now, Steve. I don't think there are any nouns in here that <laughs> yeah, didn't show right. up red. It's all prepositions.
4: Well, no,
1: hang <laughs> on. So here, here are some words that were highlighted as not in the top 10 hundred. The, yeah, <laughs> philosophy, <laughs> knowledge, skills, apply, complex, protect markets, information, oh. internet, deceive, Journey, exploration, ability, skeptic, of course, therefore. I gotta write without using the word therefore. Oh, how about the word science? So. Science. The word science. Wait, wait, wait. Science. Steve,
2: the is word on the so list? replaces the word therefore.
1: Yeah, but come on. Easy. Easy. <laughs>
3: you can't
2: imagine a world without therefore. That's the one. That's the one I mean, that therefore. Bothers you. So, so here's
1: the, so I understand the idea here. I just think that, and this is more of a gimmick. This obviously started as a cartoon, not as a serious proposition. You know, there's nothing magic about the thousand most commonly used words. I also don't, you know, in terms of a cutoff, I also don't think most commonly used is a good criterion. I think, cause there are, there are words that might be very accessible and known by most people, like therefore, but is just <laughs> not, on is just not something that's very commonly used. Yeah. You know, so I think, Typically, you know, more typically, writers try to stick to a certain grade level, not most commonly used words, like write at a fifth grade level, write at a tenth grade level, whatever. And I know like certain magazines or newspapers or whatever sort of have that as their sort of rough guideline of where they want their writers to be aiming. So
4: that seems like a more appropriate
1: –
2: USA Today is supposed to be like a third grade level. I've yeah, heard that's that what
4: once. I
1: hear. I've heard that too. I don't know.
2: I've oh, that
4: sounds too low to me. Third I don't
2: grade. know. Have you ever read it? It's really – uh, dumb. <laughs> it's
1: it's kind thing, of like reading C. Dick, C. Dick yeah, Run. Yeah, it's pretty. It is, yeah. it is lower than, say, the New York Times. There's no question about that. But the other issue is, you know, not using jargon, which of course is perfectly legitimate. And you shouldn't, you certainly shouldn't rely upon jargon when you're writing to the general public. So that's fine. I get that. Unless, of course, you, d- you define it. You know, it's okay to use a word and then define it so that you know the when you you use it in the rest of the article people know what it means you know again, i think it it was fun to do that and i and i think that just challenging scientists and writers to um to rid themselves of of jargon like that is is a good practice but i think you know if we, in in a more serious way i think there's more to it i think definitely you know writing to maybe a certain uh, education level is is legitimate being wary of jargon is very legitimate. But also I think a lot can be dealt with with writing style. I think it's okay to use more sophisticated vocabulary if you write in such a way that the meaning of those words is easily understood. It's sort of implied in what you're writing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean I, I could see as a tool if it, if
0: it were able to, to detect – and grade, say, like, what level are you writing at? You know, what, mm-hmm. what type of people would be your audience and, and all that? That would be interesting and that might help writers. But on the whole, though, I mean, I like being challenged by what I'm reading. I like having to look words up and it's fun, mm-hmm. you know, like, cause you know what? Like when you're reading and you're like, you think you know a word, you like, you kind of guess it before you look it up and you look it up and sometimes you're, you're right. But most of the time you're wrong and you have like that epiphany, like, oh, cool. Like I didn't know that that word went there, you know? I love that. That's a fun yeah, experience read- for me.
3: You're right. Reading's a discovery of sorts, definitely.
2: I think it's an exercise in thinking about how you're communicating and how the people that you're trying to reach are understanding
0: you. I now, mean, don't it- be so positive all the time. <laughs> <your> time. <laughs> Sorry.
3: Well, you know who the master of this was? was certainly Carl Sagan i you, I think anybody can go ahead and either read some of Sagan's work or watch his shows and maybe not grasp everything, but certainly more than if it was presented by certain other people.
1: All right, but let me give you a, let me give you a counter example. Stephen Jay Gould used a very sophisticated vocabulary in his writing. I still would say he wrote in a very clear and understandable way. And when he challenged you with a word that you didn't understand, either you can infer its meaning by the context of the sentence, mm-hmm. or it was good to, cha- to, to challenge yourself and to look it up and expand your vocabulary. Yeah. So, but uh, and I, so I don't think those two things exactly equate with each other. Using a simple vocabulary and being a clear, good writer.
2: Well, no, they don't. But that's not the point of it. Like the point of it is to have a shorthand. It's like a. It's a fun thing, and it's a shorthand, like the Beckdale test for films or something yeah. like that it's It's not some you know something that anybody's going to demand you adhere to. it's just something to make you think, which I think it does a pretty good job of, and you know, I think a lot of people saw the x k c d and thought a little bit more about how they're communicating ideas to others, yeah, I see what thing. you're
0: saying I see what you're saying, Rebecca, and I don't disagree with that. I just it scares me though to put a tool out there that would and maybe be bastardized to do something anti-intellectual that's all.
1: Well, you know, I agree Rebecca, uh, you know it is sort of raising consciousness about being being accessible to the general public, but it also was a bit gimmicky and I think that th- it was funny as a comic because you do end up with things like upgoer 5, you know, yeah. which it's absurd on purpose. So it, I think maybe we could take it the next step and come up with a similar tool that flags not, again, not some arbitrary and I don't think really very useful cutoff of like the thousand most common words, but f- for jargon that would inhibit the ability of the average person to understand what you're writing. But anyway, th- there's no shortcut to being a good science communicator. But, uh, yeah, th- I do think this is kind of a fun, uh, little exercise. All right. Well, Bob, you're going to tell us about the smog problem in China using only the thousand most
4: commonly used words. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Not gonna happen. I got, First of all, I, all, smog is
2: not in yeah. it. So good luck. Yeah, I got,
4: yeah. yeah. This is, or China. My, my talk, my talk is going to be riddled with therefore. So, therefore, it's not going to happen. So, guys, China and air pollution have been in the news a lot uh, recently, and and for good reason. The past couple of weeks have seen insane levels of air pollution in the Beijing area and out uh, um, and the outlying provinces. Um, it's actually been described as beyond index. Which caught which caught my attention. So off oh, the sure. charts. Yeah, that's another way. <laughs> but beyond in de- index is uh, I've seen more frequently. So I'm thinking, you know, does that mean that China is breaking the laws of air pollution physics? I mean, what's what's going on here? So I want to go over exactly what's going on over there now. It's uh it's 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 kind of crazy. CNN said recently that uh, in some of these areas that are most affected, you can't see beyond 200 feet in front of you.
3: Oh my God. 200 feet.
4: Children and the elderly are being kept indoors, or they should be if they're not, and people are told not to do any exercise. Uh, this, this (laughs) quote, this, this quote kind of struck me. A 20 year, uh, frequent flyer to China. He's been going there since, I think, 1992, fairly often. He said, for the first time I can remember, I could actually taste the air when I breathed. He said it was faintly sweet and quite unsettling when I thought about it, as you might imagine. I mean, having to chew when you breathe is pretty, pretty scary. Yeah. But the, the, the quote that got me though, uh, it actually, it got me interested in the story and it made me laugh in surprise, though it's not really a laughing matter. Uh, this is what I read in, in an article. It said the smog was so bad in, in Zhejiang province, that when a furniture factory caught fire earlier this month, the blaze burned for three hours before anyone noticed the smoke. Can you imagine you know, a, a building burning and no one even knows about it? Can't even see the smoke after th- it took three hours. That just it just boggled my mind that that would actually happen.
0: It actually seems right now unbelievable to me. I'm not a 100% sure how true this is.
4: Jay, I believe it. If you see pictures, it's 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 like a like a dense fog. I mean, the first thing you think is that oh wow, it's just a a really nasty fog, but it's not fog. This is just nasty air pollution. P- everyone's wearing masks and uh it's pr- it's pretty crazy. And I'm not, I'm not even going into the details yet. Where do you hear some of this stuff? So the next thing, you know, how do we know that it's it's that bad actually? How is this measured and what what is this whole index thing? Um it's all about AQI, Air Quality Index. You may have heard that before and this it's a number used by by government agencies, kind of like to give people an idea how much pollution is in the air. What do, you know, what what exactly are we talking about? And that seems kind of obvious, right? The higher the number, the greater the likelihood that you know more and more people will have an increasingly serious health issue with this the number though this index and how it's derived is not is not set in stone it's not a formula that anyone can plug in uh, even the name varies between countries some countries call it air quality health index or air pollution index or Pollu- pollutant standards index most of the contaminants actually that are found in the air aren't even associated with the AQI it's, they're not even represented uh, but the ones that do are generally, of course, the pretty bad ones, like ground-level ozone, particulates, sulfur dioxide, and carbon monoxide, and and nitrogen dioxide as well. So those are those are the bad ones. The things they really want to capture with this index is are particles that are about 25 uh, micrometers, or is that that's is that micrometers or micrometers? I always mess that up.
2: I always prefer micrometers. Same with kilometers. Yeah,
4: I
3: prefer micrometers.
4: So the problem with particles this size is that they can get really, really deep into your lungs and it bypasses all your natural defenses and it just does all sorts of nasty stuff. So those are the things that, that they really want to track and those are the, the most important things about this. All right, so let's go over the AQI as it is for the United States. Green is good, pretty much uh, what you want. It's zero to 50. The index is zero to 50, and that's basically described as satisfactory, and there's, there's little or no risk from air pollution pretty much to everybody. Then there's yellow, which is moderate, and that's 51 to 100, and that's acceptable. There might be some moderate concern for people that are especially sensitive, but otherwise, it's nothing really to worry about at all. So then you get into orange, and that's unhealthy. That's 101 to one hundred and fifty, and it's unhealthy primarily, though, for people that are sensitive. Right, you know, the general public is still kind of okay with it.
2: So, what, like people with asthma. Okay. Yeah,
4: people with asthma, or or generally people that are um. Elderly or or really really young. Those are the two. Those are two. So I would I would think those three things would would cover it very well. Then you get into red, and that's just flat out unhealthy. That's 151 to 200, and that's that's going to have act- possible health effects for everyone. Then we go into purple, and that's very unhealthy. That's 201 to 300, and that's basically an emergency condition. Everyone is uh, is more likely to be affected with this. And then the final one in this index is maroon, and that's Black. and oh. that's just flat out hazardous. That's 301 to 500. And that's a health alert. Every everyone may experience uh, more serious health issues, and these and these levels are only seen in the vicinity uh, of large forest fires. That, that's where you can pretty much routinely see this. Um, recently, uh, pollution in Beijing reached an astounding five hundred and seventeen. So that's why people say it's beyond the index because it goes it goes beyond. The highest that we have that we, that we routinely w- discuss. So that's beyond index. And that's not even the worst. According to the most reliable figures that we have, the, the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, back earlier, earlier in January 2013, the AQI hit, get this, 755. I, you know, I think we need to update our index for numbers between five hundred one and one thousand. And uh yeah, and you nailed it, Evan. I th- I would give that a color of black. I would call that black. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not even sure what we should call it. Uh, I mean, what's worse than hazardous? Uh, I mean, maybe we could just call it the China Zone or something.
3: De- deadly. Uh, it's really. I don't know even know how you can how you can survive for a moment
4: <laughs> in a condition in conditions like that.
0: An asthmatic would die in those situations. Oh yeah, I mean, just that number yeah. of nine thousand oh, yeah. kids
4: in Beijing being treated uh, broke all records and that's just kids going in
0: well i hope now that this information has been collected and that other governments know about it that there's going to be some you know some leverage on them to make changes even beyond what they're they're doing on their own
1: that's tough you know th- this is the uh, economic progress at all costs that you know some are talking about right now china for example consumes almost yeah. half of the world's coal so, the rest of the world combined, Yikes. you know, they're almost equal to the rest of the world combined in terms of their, their coal burning.
0: Yeah, I mean, the world is, is, you know, over the past 20 years has turned into a very small place with the amount of people that we have and, and industry's effect on the environment. We have to take stuff like this seriously and people have to be open-minded about change.
1: All right. Well, Jay, one of the most common items we've been getting emailed about this week is about uh, a recent decision by the U.S. vaccine court.
0: Yeah. This is really interesting. Even though I've, I've heard the term vaccine court and I've, you know, I had an idea about what it was. When you, when you find out the details, when you read in and some of the stuff that we're going to share with you, it might surprise you. There is something called the vaccine injury compensation program. And a recent article in the Huff Pooh, I'm calling it the Huff Pooh from now
5: on. (laughs) I like it. (laughs)
0: It it covers this and and I don't think that the the person who wrote the article did a very
1: good job because Well hang on. The person who wrote the article is David Kirby. He wrote the book Evidence of Harm. He's been beating this anti vaccine drum now for the last seven or eight years. Uh he's the one who was sure, sure that it was all about the thimerosal, you know, the mercury-based preservative in vaccines was causing autism that now when when thimerosal was removed from the vaccines that that autism rates were going to plummet. He's still waiting for them to plummet. He was totally wrong about that, never admitted it, never and wrong. now he's just digging in, doubling down on the whole anti-vaccine nonsense. So what this court
0: actually does is they determine if a family deserves compensation because of their child's health issues seemingly related to their vaccine shots. And that one statement I just made is complicated, and we're going to get into that. Not surprisingly, many conclude that people like this, the author of this article concluded this is proof that the government knows that vaccines cause autism and other brain-related issues. From the outside... I can't really disagree with that with little knowledge and looking over this reading this guy's article there's not much to disagree the government is paying money to these families whose children are suffering from the onset of autism and brain brain disorders and whatnot soon after they get their shots so what is going on here. The article goes on to quote the parents and the relatives of a child who was reported to have a sudden change after the vaccines were administered. The family said their child was developing normally, you know, in, in fact, in a lot of the cases, the family reported their children as brighter than average. But soon after getting the vaccines, the child came down with seizures high in dangerous fevers and they never fully recovered after they got their shots. They showed a loss of intelligence, not making eye contact, you know, loss of interest in what's going on around them and these are symptoms of autism. There's a specific case out of California where the parents said that their child got vaccines and it caused their son to get autism and the parents said that they suffered a vaccine table injury, namely... Encephalopathy. Thank you, doctor. So you need to be a doctor <laughs> to say these big words, hence the article the thing that Rebecca was talking about earlier. That word <laughs> did not make the cut. Continuing, according to the HuffPoo article, a year and a half later, the government con- conceded that the MMR, MMR vaccine had indeed caused the child's brain damage, brain suffrage, and issues. It was also reported that in total, the child's families will receive $10 million plus.
1: Steve, what is happening? The government is not acknowledging (laughs) anything, first of all. So here's the background. The, uh, the vaccine court is a way of compensating people who have negative side effects from vaccines. And this serves a couple of purposes. One is so that, you know, people could be compensated if they're injured and to encourage people to take the vaccine. You know, if they do suffer a negative side effect, there's this easier pathway. They don't don't have to, like, sue a company and go up against the company's lawyers. They could just go to the vaccine court and it sort of greases the spokes for them getting compensation. And also, it indemnifies to some degree the vaccine manufacturers so that it's actually plausible to manufacture vaccines in this country without constantly fending off endless lawsuits. Vaccine companies, by the way, can still be sued for negligence and doing something wrong. They just can't be sued every time somebody gets a side effect from a vaccine. When Jay mentioned a table injury, what that means is that there are certain things that are listed in the table, and if it happens, you don't have to prove cause and effect. All you have to do is say, my child got a vaccine. Five to fifteen days later, they got encephalitis. Boom. That's it. It's on the table. It's an automatic compensation. And the only thing that needs to be determined at that point is how much compensation. So that, that was the case here. And again, the, the judgment is usually something along the lines of compensation is appropriate. Not, yes, you have proved scientifically that the vaccine caused your, uh, your child's injury, your child's neurological syndrome or whatever. It's just they set the bar actually quite Jeez. low. The rules of evidence are actually lower than regular courts of law. They've relaxed the rules of evidence. And they, their purpose is to determine whether or not you meet the criteria for compensation, not to establish whether or not vaccines are actually causing these side effects. That's the thing. That's the thing with, with these issues. It's not scientific evidence that vaccines cause anything. Secondly, uh, these children don't have autism. They have encephalopathy. They have, you know, brain damage from inflammation of their brain. They may, it may cause symptoms that are similar to autism, but this is, they don't have autism. So it's just inaccurate to say that. They, they may have autism-like symptoms, but they have a completely different syndrome. They had it, they had inflammation in their brain which may or may not have been related to the vaccine. But even if we assume that everybody who gets – because, you know, people get encephalitis without it being in any way associated with a vaccine. It happens. Uh, but even if we assume that every child that gets encephalitis within a certain time period after a vaccine was caused by the vaccine, which is probably not true, even if we assume that this is an extremely rare complication of vaccines – the benefits of vaccines still vastly outweigh these extremely rare cases. Um, you know, we're talking, depending on how you count the numbers, you know, it's something in the, on the order of magnitude of one in hundreds of thousands or one in a million cases that have something really severe like this happen. So this becomes propaganda every now and then. The anti-vaccine movement, the anti-vaccinationists, will use this as propaganda the latest ruling from the vaccine court, you're going to hear this. This is not nothing new every year or two that, you know, they get, they get a new news cycle out of this. You know, the U S government admits vaccines cause autism. It's all lies. It's all this distortion of what's actually going on. So I hope that makes a lot of you feel better. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a scary idea to
0: think that a lot of people out there are actually seeing something that they could say, Hey, this is a real indication that they're, that, you know, the, the vaccines are hurting people and everything. And, you know, absolutely. There there are people that do have negative reactions, legitimate negative
1: reactions to, yeah. to vaccinations. It it's no one said they're perfectly safe. Nothing in medicine is perfectly safe. Yeah. All right, Evan, tell us about the deer antler spray and Ray Lewis, what's going on here?
3: This coming Sunday is Super Bowl Sunday. We're live from New Orleans, Louisiana. <laughs> The championship game of the National Football League will be played. The contestants this year are the San Francisco 49ers and the Baltimore Ravens. Now the Baltimore Ravens have a star player. He's a linebacker with a very storied NFL career. His name is Ray Lewis as you said Steve. He is a 13-time All-Pro and he's playing in his 16th NFL season all of which he's played with the Baltimore Ravens. And this game the Super Bowl will be the last of his career. He announced that Earlier in the season, that this was going to be his his last season as a pro player. Now Lewis suffered a torn tricep muscle injury earlier in the season, and he missed the rest of the regular season. So, what do you think the number one news story this week, Super Bowl week, is out there that's making its that's making headlines everywhere?
2: Something about the Puppy Bowl? Right. Is it
3: deer? Ant- <laughs> I wish, Steve. It was. You're right. Deer antler spray. What? Guys, this is the first time in my life I ever heard a deer antler spray. The owner of a company which produces alternative medicine-based products, including a spray which reportedly includes the ingredient ground-up Deer Antlers, is asserting that Ray Lewis uses, or at least once used, deer antler spray. Uh, the company is called Sports with Alternatives to Steroids, or SWATs for short. The owner's name is Mitch Ross, and Sports Illustrated, which is the biggest sports magazine in the world, reported that Mitch Ross recorded a phone call with Ray Lewis hours after he hurt his arm in that October game. And the, and according to the report, Lewis asked Ross to send him deer antler spray and pills along with other products made by this alternative medicine company. The problem for Lewis is that the NFL has banned the use of this product because it is it contains... Well, something called IGF-1. Uh, IGF, the IGF part of that stands for insulin-like growth factor. And it's a hormone that naturally occurs in the body and circulates in the blood. And apparently deer antlers are, have a lot of this. IGF-1 in it. There are synthetic versions of this IGF-1, and as well, uh, but this company claims to use, uh, you know, all natural products, and they humanely remove the the antlers from deer and grind it up into their various products. And uh, several companies have evaluated IGF-1 in clinical trials for a variety of indications, including type one diabetes, type two diabetes, ALS. Steve, I don't know if you want to comment on that at all. If you know anything about yeah, it this. doesn't work.
1: <laughs> well, thank you. There were some, you know, some <laughs> conflicting trials early on, but it never gained approval. Never, never crossed over the bar to show that it had enough of an effect.
3: There you go. Yep, and of course, the product has never been approved by the FDA. So, numerous sources have claimed that deer antler spray it contains this IGF one, which apparently it does. But credence to these claims come from the fact that deer antlers grow extremely rapidly, and that the associates. Associated cellular factors can similarly aid in skeletal healing in humans or and muscle healing in humans. That's the reason why apparently Ray Lewis tried this product, although he denies it because it's a, you know it's obviously against the rules of the NFL and the NFL has, for this reason, banned it. It's on their list of banned substances. Here's a here's a blurb from the uh, one of the co-founders of Swats. His name is Christopher Key. Listen to this, guys. Deer antlers are the fastest growing substance on the planet Earth because of the high concentration of IGF-1. We've been able to freeze dry that out, extract it, put it in a sublingual spray that you shake for 20 seconds and then spray three times, only three times, under your tongue. The stuff has been around for almost a thousand years. This stuff is from the Chinese.
1: Mm -hmm. So it must be good. So this is, this highlights an area where a lot of, in my opinion, a lot of alternative Um, supplements and products, you know, things that you consume where they fail. You know, most stuff out there doesn't have good bioavailability. Whatever it is and whatever you think it does, if it doesn't get into your system, it's worthless. Now, of course, that's a huge part of drug development is putting it into a form that could actually be absorbed by the root of administration and that you get a, you know, how much gets into the body. But when you completely bypass that stuff, that step, you're very unlikely to get a product that's going to have sufficient bioavailability that it's going to do anything so mm-hmm. who cares about what igf1 does they, this guy they're not proving that enough of it's actually getting into the system and of course you know the igf1 You know, you'd have to prove that it's working for what you're, what you're talking about. I I did do a quick literature search just to see what's published there. There was conveniently a December 2012 systematic review of all the randomized controlled trials on this, and they found that it works for nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there were, they, they found seven trials that satisfied the inclusion criteria two for rheumatoid arthritis, one for osteoarthritis, one for sexual dysfunction, and three for sports performance enhancement and they found that it doesn't work right right so there you go
3: Steve, the folks on the, at the website over at swats so they have a hot, a hot link to what they are claiming is the scientific research and evidence that proves that, you know, this stuff is effective. And they link to one study done in 2003, not even really a study, a private company that they most likely hired or, you know, mm-hmm. one of the deer antler, you know, companies uh, hired to, to kind of put this together for them. And the first line of this thing says, this, OK, this is the link to their scientific evidence, right right from their website. First line of this review. This document Document is not intended as a scientific literature review; rather, a summary of benefits described by various reviews, with comments of caution provided by researchers. So that's there's you know yeah. that that passes as science. So, so here's some anecdotes
4: for, for what it's worth.
3: <laughs> anecdotes and appeals to uh, antiquity. You know, they bring up the traditional Chinese medicine stuff again. It's all a bunch of crap. Did you guys? And the the chunk of the article from Sports Illustrated that's really making the rounds, and a lot of people emailed us on this, um, is. Well, I'll just read it for you, and you know, because it's it's beyond belief. Uh, Ross, this is the owner of the company. He prescribed a deluxe program including holographic stickers on the right elbow of Ray Lewis, uh, copious quantities of the powder additive—that's uh, the uh, the uh, deer antler pills—sleeping in front of a beam ray light programmed with frequencies for tissue regeneration and pain relief. Right now, is he just sounds like light? a Bond villain. <laughs> wait, wait. Did, did
0: Drinkin- you, Evan? Did you say a beam light?
3: Beam ray light. As if it, beam hyphen ray.
0: As light. if what 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 light isn't in a beam? What the hell's that about? Or a ray? Yeah. Well, it's
3: programmed with frequencies. You know, good frequencies, the good ones that relieve pain. Now, here's another one: R- drinking negatively charged water. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And a ten per day regimen of the deer antler pills that will rebuild your brain via your small intestines. That's a quote. Whoa.
1: So, Evan, we had a pretty tricky puzzle last week.
3: It was very tricky. I mean, it, it was tricky for me, certainly. I didn't get the answer <laughs> off the bat by any stretch. I definitely had to look it up. Here's the puzzle we had from last week. I have two children. One is a boy born on a Tuesday. What is the probability I have two boys? This was an exercise in, or should I say rather a, uh example of how bad people are inherently at probability.
1: Yeah, it's very counterintuitive.
3: Very counterintuitive. Uh, lots of guesses included 50%. Some people thought this was sort of a trick question, it's like, duh, you know, which, you know, I I don't, uh, I, which was actually my first thought, too. I thought it might have been a trick question. And then a lot of people sort of took the first step and realized, okay, so what are the different combinations and, you know, of two children? Obviously, you know, boy, boy, girl, girl, boy, girl, girl, boy and, uh, you eliminate one of those four possibilities. You're left with one out of three, you kind of, you know, one third, that was a lot of guesses. Uh, but it's actually a little bit deeper than that, that you have to go because the fact that one boy is born on a Tuesday is a main part of this puzzle, which does affect the outcome. I spent hours trying to look up some of the more, uh, concise ways of explaining the, uh, the statistics involved. And, uh, I was on with, with Steve and Bob the other night, you know, trying to get a better grasp for it, and I came across something that I think works, so I'm going to read this, and uh, one of the listeners, Kevin Baticki, uh, sent this in, and I think this is a good way of explaining it. He says, the answer comes down to analyzing the sample space of equally probable possibilities, which in this case comes down to the following. Number one, the first child is a boy born on Tuesday, and the second is a girl born on any day therefore, those are seven possibilities. Number two, the first child is a boy born on Tuesday, and the second is a boy born on any day, there again are seven possibilities. Number three, the first child is a girl born on any day, and the second is a boy born on a Tuesday. And that gives you seven more possibilities. And finally, number four, the first child is a boy born on any day except Tuesday, and the second is a boy born on Tuesday there are six possibilities there. And we exclude the case where the first boy is born on Tuesday. That possibility was already counted in the second case. So that means there are 7 plus 7 plus 7 plus 6 possible combinations. That's 27 possible combinations, of which 7 plus 6 in the second and third cases, as described, That equals 13. Your odds are 13 over 27, which is just under 50%, about 48%.
1: Yeah, so it does seem counterintuitive that the information about being born on Tuesday would affect the odds. Uh, But if you follow this approach, it does. Of course, there are those who question whether or not this is the right approach
2: yeah i don't yeah. I don't get it, and I'm probably not gonna get it tonight, but I just feel like everybody was born on someday, so I don't understand how it changes anything, like if you were to go knocking on a hundred doors. You know, I think your results would be 50-50 in guessing what the other kid was.
1: Yeah, but People, that this is where the counterintuitive part comes in. It all comes down to what information you had ahead of time and how you acquired the information. Well, I, I, you, I only acquired it because he just <laughs>
2: mentioned it. He <laughs> just randomly <laughs> mentioned it. Yeah, I mean,
1: it he's telling random. me, and I'm not even
0: trying to get the information. He's just talking. Yeah. yeah well, that's how you got it. Why did he say it?
2: I don't understand.
3: <laughs> I don't get it. We did have a couple people get the correct answer. Uh, From the random drawing we do every week, this week's winner is Jim Finn, P-H-Y-N-N. Congratulations, Jim. You got the correct answer. And you are now in the drawing, the final drawing for the year to win a guest spot on The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe to join us for an episode of Science or Fiction. So congratulations.
1: And what do you got for this week?
3: This week, we are going back to the who's that noisies.
4: (laughs) Here we go. If you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. Who's that voicey? Who's that voicey?
3: So go ahead, folks. Give it your best guess. WTN at skepticsguide.org. And our forum is sguforums.com. Register there. Give us your guess. Good luck, everyone.
1: Thanks, Evan. You're we have one email this week. This one comes from John Leeson from Manchester, UK and John writes Hi guys, love the show. Now I know they cannot work, but there's a few that almost seem plausible. The first is a self-flowing flask, also the ball bearing wheel, the other ba- the overbalance wheel and the overbalance wheel with the pivoting arms. Am I being tricked or are these actually possible? I'm in mind that I'm being tricked, but I can't see why. Uh so he gives a link to a video showing uh various Perpetual Motion Machines. And I know you guys have all had a chance to look at these. The first one is the ever-flowing or the self-flowing flask. It's essentially I a love flask. That with, idea, by the Yeah, the, the tube going down the bottom, uh, which cur- curves around to above the flask and then drains back into the flask, and then they fill it with a green liquid, and the liquid drains out the bottom, snakes around the top, and pours back in the top of the flask, and you have this perpetual motion of the flask constantly filling itself. The name makes it sound better than it is. Yeah, Yeah, right. yeah that's true. Yeah, it's not a D&D magic item, Rebecca. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, of the ever-flowing flask.
4: <laughs> yeah, obviously. Take my plus-one flask. Um, so what do, you, what do you guys think about this? Did it, did it have to do with air, air pressure, Steve, changing the air pressure maybe to make it easier to come back up? And down? Uh, How? Uh, Lowering the air pressure? No, you're getting too complicated. Okay. Wasn't it just a,
2: just a thingy? What are those
3: called? (laughs) A pump? Uh, yeah, yeah,
2: a simple pump. There's another word for it that I'm missing,
3: but yeah. Didn't we have a big argument about siphoning? uh, Siphon, that's the word. (laughs) Yeah, siphon. Yeah,
2: it's just a siphon and it's just a very efficient siphon,
1: right? No. So the, the fluid could not rise higher than the fluid in the flask. The fluid in the thought, tube yeah. would not go higher than the fluid in the flask. That's it, period. And you can actually find um, videos on YouTube where people set this up honestly, and that's exactly what happens. The fluid always just rises to the Stops. level of whatever it is at the top of the flask. But if you look at this device in this video that we'll link to, I noticed something very specific. The water flows out the bottom of the flask, and then uh-huh. the bottom of the flask is hold is held by this wide wooden arm, right? So you can't see like a half an inch or an inch of the tube. Yep. And there's there is a noticeable delay in the fluid flowing out the bottom of the flask and then out the bottom of this the tube from the bottom of the uh, wooden arm.
3: Yeah, it does seem to b- almost pause there for a moment. Yeah, so as if something's
4: going on uh, there. So and you some can't, mechanism and you- there that pushes it along.
3: You can't hear it either. There's uh, music in the background, right? So you don't, you're not Very hearing
4: are not Very annoying, obnoxious music, by
3: yeah.
2: the way. I'm glad yeah, you said that because I was about to open it up to see what we were talking about. Turn
1: the volume off.
3: Yeah, but could that be a means of masking whatever little perhaps assistance this might actually be getting I it's
1: also know. on a base you know there's a plenty of place uh, space in there to hide a, a pump so right. i why think why not just hold it with your fingers
3: i mean you don't even need a device you just have someone hold this yeah, thing
1: exactly or you know, it could be held in such a way that there wouldn't be this opportunity say for example to have the tube be going down into this base where there's a pump pumping it back out. So I think the delay is the fluid flowing through the hidden section of tube that we're not seeing that's going to the pump. Potentially. So it's just an illusion. The next one is just stupid. If you guys, and this is like just uh, <laughs> a. This is a toy. I mean, you could buy. It's just, they say uh, the thing that rolls uphill. Oh, yeah. You separate the, t- yeah, the so two. Yeah. So they basically uh, imagine like two cones together. It's uh, You roll it. Uh, along these two boards, which get wider as they separate. Oh, right. yeah.
2: I've seen this toy at the, uh, this, yeah, I suck at those sharper things. image.
1: Yeah. yeah exactly. This when I was seven, seven years old, I played with a toy yeah. like
3: this.
5: Yeah. So
1: the edges of the ramp are definitely going up. So the illusion is, oh, look, it's rolling uphill. But it's so obvious if you look at the center of gravity of this object that it's going downhill.
3: It's falling in between,
1: right? Because it's, yeah, it's falling down. in between the widening things. That one's just silly. That's just a toy. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously. And then the rest the other three are these overbalanced wheels. You know, apparently Da Vinci, you know, came up with design for one. And the the concept here is that as the wheel rotates, it has some mechanism, whether it's balls or arms or whatever, which causes yeah, more torque on one side than the other, uh and therefore it should continually push it around and encircle. circle but these things don't work they don't work because perpetual motion is impossible i also i often ask people can you hear it is it making mm-hmm. any noise where's the energy that's making that noise coming from this thing is radiating energy away from itself so unless you're putting more energy into the system it's going to slow down plus i'm sure there's also some friction and air resistance yep, you know absolutely yeah there's you've You've got to be putting energy into this to keep it going. Yeah. So all of these, none of these wheels work. You know, if you build them, they go for a few, a little while. If you make them really efficient, they could go for a while, but they stop. They eventually stop. So you may also-
2: as well have used one of those dolphin things you can get at Spencer's Gifts, <laughs> right? Or like the Drinky Bird.
1: Yeah, the Drinky Bird. <laughs> here's a
2: here's a thirty second clip of this thing. It's gonna go forever.
3: Just trust Steve, you're, yeah. you're just part, you're just part of big energy, right? You're yeah, right, just trying to suppress, right. suppress, the truth. So I here.
1: did find some, like, how to make these perpetual motion wheels online as well. And it, you know, they, they all amount to, there's a hidden motor in there somewhere, right? I mean, that's what it all, you could, yeah. there could be really tiny actuators that are, that run off just the, you know, of a trickle of energy, like from your USB port, um, for example. And it's just, that's, there's, there's just a tiny motor in there somewhere. That's it. One quick correction from last week. We talked about the river on Mars. That was really an ancient river bed on Mars. Turns out it is a river. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, we were reading from the article. Uh, we commented that the, the riverbed was 1.5 to 3.7 million years old. Uh, but the article was in error. It's 1.5 to 3.7 billion years old. Whoa. Yeah. Not million. Yes. It's- so which right. so a did few orders of magnitude didn't sound right to me at the time I should have questioned it you know just it just it was like wow that's not it's not a long time ago but yeah it's these all the all of the um riverbeds and evidence of flowing water on the surface of Mars are really from the ancient Martian surface from from billions of years ago We are joined now by John Rennie. John, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide.
5: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: And John is known as the seventh editor-in-chief of Scientific American, but also is currently the editorial director for Access Science and is a blogger at PLOS Blogs. He is basically a science writer and editor extraordinaire and we always <laughs> love having him on the show so John uh welcome back and we're talking to you tonight because of your new project so why don't we just get right into that tell us what you're doing next
5: yes thanks i'm uh, i'm very happy to say that i'm actually the host of a new show that i helped to create that's uh going to be appearing on the weather channel very soon the show is called hacking the planet and it takes a look at uh at different sorts of natural disasters and risks and, uh, tries to determine just what it is we might be able to do about them.
1: So, I mean, is there a lot we can do to hack the planet? I mean, obviously, there's a, you know, can we do anything about hurricanes, tornadoes, volcanoes, or?
5: Well, it's, it's a sort of a complicated question. You know, I think a lot of it does, um, there's no one answer that applies across all of those different sorts of, of threats. I think in some cases, there's a surprising amount that really at least theoretically could be done in some cases there's there's um, some uh, a fair amount that's actually already being done A lot of it also comes down to the the question of how you want to define hacking we're taking a fairly broad look at it in some cases about you know using the idea of of taking what we understand about uh, all of these kinds of natural threats and uh, where they come from how they work and then trying to use that information uh, to our advantage so the more extreme cases are of course exactly what you're talking about the, the sort of thing of is it is it possible to maybe be able to try to to control or steer uh, something like a, a hurricane but in some cases, it's also just a, a question of uh, using what we have learned to try to see of, of how how far could we go toward trying to say predict the path of a tornado, or is there something that we would be able to do to be able to use some of these threatening phenomena and use them to our advantage? So, is there something that uh, you know that we can use about volcanoes to you know for power, that kind of thing?
1: And how is a lot of it about predicting these things as well?
5: Uh, prediction tends to be sort of a, a thread that runs through a, a lot of them, um, but that's certainly not the the only thing that we're that we're looking at. But uh, prediction, to some extent, is definitely sort of a a, a common touchstone to these things because um, certainly if you are are looking to control them, you have to understand what their dynamics are going to be. Um, so you you know, for example, if you wanted to try to do something toward uh, say trying to steer a hurricane. You have to have a very good idea of where the hurricane might be going under its own natural forces, uh, let alone, uh, what it would do if you tried to influence that in some additional way.
0: John, isn't it, isn't it typical that, uh, you know, these types of things are so unbelievably hard to predict and they're, you know, they're wild, you know, like any, any, all these variables that could come in at any time can change them dramatically.
5: Well, it, it, it definitely with some of these things, it's it's a much bigger uh, issue than than some others. Not necessarily a deal breaker in all kinds of cases. I mean, I think with something like hurricanes, we're still very much still in in a learning stage of it. But hurricanes are. Big enough phenomena that, you know, you really can develop better and better models to, uh, you know, at least in theory, you know, really start to have a, a pretty good idea of how hurricanes will be taking shape. We're still in relatively early days with that, but we're, we're farther along with it than, than a lot of people might imagine. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, you might talk about something like tornadoes in which, you know, they are are very volatile, they're very hard to predict exactly what the, the course of any one particular funnel is going to be, but you can start to predict a lot about something of the, the larger weather system surrounding, um, you know, whether uh, tornadoes will actually be taking shape, and sometimes that's what you want to try to take a look at, uh, too. But I should also say that, you know, when we're, a uh, thing that I actually have really appreciated a lot about in working with the, the producers on the the show and 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 with the the weather channel on this is that you know when we look at these things we, we acknowledge that in some cases the the answer to whether or not you're going to be able to predict something or be able to manipulate it in some cases you know it might it might really be no or no for anything resembling the foreseeable future the nice thing is that Posing the question gives us an opportunity to get into the science of well, just why are these things so hard to predict? Um, and but then sometimes that then also opens the door to some other kinds of things you could do uh, with them instead.
3: Hey, John, will there be a component to this series in which you address sort of uh, any pseudoscientific aspects of uh, of of this uh, field of research?
5: Yeah, that's a, that's a good question because it does sort of come up. You know, the, the funny thing with a lot of of these things that we're looking at is, is that in some cases, the, the science of these, I mean, definitely does, is in a much more new, dubious state than others. In fact, an interesting thing is with with some of these things, how many of them occupy what uh, you know Michael Shermer sometimes talk about talks about as being sort of a fringe science, things that are sort of right on the edge. They may some days really start to accrete into something that comes much more mainstream, or they could really be kind of far out. And we definitely uh, talk about a few things that um, are are, cases that, that. Certain people they use some kinds of technologies, but whether or not they they really work is really questioned. And some of those are not always exactly what uh, you might imagine. So, for example, there's a um, a technology that people use called hail cannons, which is kind of impressive to to uh, see a firsthand. Um, hail cannons are these big devices that uh, uh, some farmers will uh, uh, pay a considerable amount of of money for. Um, they believe that using these helps to keep the hail off of uh, their fields and we try to take a look at well what exactly is uh, you know is understood about why that does or or doesn't work but even something like say rainmaking and cloud seeding mm-hmm. which is something that we've all you know have heard about a lot and and it's not a you know a new technology people have been doing this uh, for decades so I think a lot of us would would kind of have assumed that the science on whether or not Seeding clouds works might be kind of settled at this point, and it's really surprisingly not. Partly because it turns out that it's a, it's a, it's really hard to actually study some of this and sometimes determine whether or not seeding a cloud actually has an effect or has the kind of effect that people think. So there are some experiments that are going on right now that are trying to actually still settle that question. Uh, but it's, it's sort of interesting just to, to see how much, arguably, it's still sort of an open question about how well they they really work. And and the nice thing is the show gives us an opportunity to at least to, to t- take a look at some of that.
0: John, how about the, uh, the harp and weather control and mind control and chemical? Trails and all that I mean come on man You're in on this now Yeah, I'm part of the. I'm part of the problem now, man.
5: (laughs) Oh, the secrets I've seen. That's it. It's going to be raining all over your house from now on. Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, that's uh, uh, when when we started to get into a lot of these things. There was so much. There's there's so much stuff, even in sometimes much more mainstream topics, that we just literally didn't have space to get into in in the space of you know, like the half hour episodes. Um, But yeah, I mean, I would I would love to have been able to talk about some of the kinds of the conspiracy theories that people have about things that like harp uh which somehow seems to be connected to all kinds of weather control in in certain people's minds anyway harp actually being as far as all the documentation seems to indicate um really just basically a radar system for you know improving surveillance kind of over the over the horizon but you know it has definitely people have implicated it in trying to manipulate the jet stream and uh trying to change the ionosphere and uh you know, trying to cause earthquakes. Harp has probably been linked to virtually every sort of potentially nefarious uh, type of, of global manipulation you can think of. Yeah.
1: Have you started filming episodes already?
5: We have, yeah. We started a few months ago. Actually, the first couple of them are, in fact, all edited at this point and have been passed over to the Weather Channel. We debut uh, on Thursday, February 28th at 9 p.m.
1: And so while you're not being a TV star, you're also <laughs> maintaining the, your other career or your, your primary career as a science writer. So what, tell us about the work you're doing there.
5: Oh, uh, just certainly doing a, a lot of different things. I'm, uh, I'm working uh, with uh, McGraw-Hill Education these days. I'm the editorial director of uh, their science encyclopedia online called, uh, access science at access Um, that's an interesting thing to, to be involved with these days. And, uh, you know, haven't been involved with those kind of reference works in the past. Or in, and, uh, also I'm, uh, you know, still uh, trying to blog over at uh, the public library of science, uh, plus blogs, um, and, uh, you know, various other science writing whenever, wherever I can. Um, I'm also doing a bunch of teaching about science writing, um, for, uh, New York University, and, uh, I, uh, do things up at, uh, at the, uh, Banff Arts Center in Canada. Gives me occasion to go up to beautiful Banff. Mm-hmm. Banff, uh, Banff. <laughs> yes. Emphasis on the, f- <laughs> <laughs> on the, that's right. <laughs> so I'm, I'm busy these days.
1: And it sounds like you're comfortable, you know, having moved the bulk of your writing online. Uh, that, that's where the world is moving.
5: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I actually really in, enjoy it a lot. I think it's, it's, uh, great, you know, to be able to so effortlessly, you know, make the sort of connection back to primary sources, for example, and be able to, uh, um, make connections between, uh, text and different sorts of, you know, multimedia forms of presentation. I think that's, that's really interesting. And I think it's, I, I mean, I have to say, I think it's, it's also, going to be really interesting um moving into the future with this of seeing how all of these different sorts of media when it comes to scientific presentations about how they can sort of lean on one another's strengths as we all know science on television has often not had a lot of opportunities to to prosper there are you know some kind of handfuls of of things that we can all point to as like really good examples of of that but um You know, a lot of the time it, it has a hard time, um, hitting the kind of balance that, that we, you know, some of us would love to have of something that's going to be Appealing enough to a big audience, but that might also then be able to get into the kind of, of depth that at least some portions of the audience might like to get. And I think that's one of the, the great things is that it, as we're sort of seeing all different sorts of, of programming or, or communication as, as they start to, to join up across a lot of different media, you've got the opportunities to let people start to explore these subjects in whatever, you know, whatever depth they would like. So, you know, ideally I would like, you know, something like hacking the planet. I I would love to think that that's we'll be able to do things online. That will uh, start to sort of expand what uh, what people would be able to learn a little bit about during the the TV episode. And then they can you know find out how much more uh, information really is available on some of these subjects.
1: So, John, are you going to be at Nexus this year?
5: I'm definitely uh, hoping to be there. Yeah, I'm I'm I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, you know, the Nexus is a great. Highlight of the the skeptics calendar, and um, you know, definitely also hoping to uh, be be there at uh, TAM this year as well. Awesome. So I think it's uh, you know going to be uh, an exciting year on the skeptic front for me.
1: Great. Well, that's probably the next time we'll see you then.
5: Listen, I really appreciate uh, as always getting a chance to, to talk with you guys. You're you're always a, a lot of fun, and uh, keep up the the good skeptical work.
1: All right, thanks, John. It's time for science or fiction each week i come up with three science news items or facts two genuine and one fictitious Then i challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake are we all quite ready for this yes week's uh challenge? whistle yeah. pig whistle i mean pig. yes okay here we go item number one A new study concludes that domestic cats are the number one threat to U.S. wildlife, killing between 8 and 24 billion animals annually. Item number two, scientists have demonstrated the efficacy of intense blue light in treating bacterial sepsis in mice. And item number three, scientists have created the first three-dimensional microchip. Rebecca, go first.
2: I can buy the idea that domestic cats are a huge threat to U.S. wildlife, I think that for the most part, I'm trying to think of what other threats there would be. Like, I know that, I get that they're a huge threat, but are they the number one threat? I feel like that's tough to say. So, I mean, we've already killed everything that we could through suburban sprawl, right? There have been a ton of studies recently, especially like in the last year or so, there's been a lot of cat hate in the news. Outdoor cats and stray cats are... Super good at murdering things. So yeah, keep your cats indoors. Uh, so yeah, I can believe that. Um, intense blue light treating bacterial sepsis. I don't understand this at all. Do you mean light that's blue or is that like a?
1: Sp- yeah, light the, that's blue, a very specific oh. frequency of blue light.
2: Hmm. All right. I have no idea about these last two. Three dimensional microchip. Aren't all microchips three dimensional? <laughs>
1: What does that mean? It means the information transfers in three dimensions. Oh. Ah. Oh. I'm sorry you cleared that up because before
2: this, this was going to be a really easy (laughs) choice. (laughs) I have no idea. I really have, I know nothing about the microchip industry and I know nothing about bacterial sepsis. So this is just going to be a complete coin flip between these two. I'm going to say, I'll say that the three-dimensional microchip is the fiction. I don't I don't know. Okay. <laughs> All right, Evan.
3: Okay. Domestic cats are the number one threat to US wildlife. Th- those numbers are huge. Between 8 and 24 billion animals annually. It's pretty widespread when you think about it, but the million, but you know, 8 billion is a as a low end. Domestic cats. We're not even talking about, you know, what, the other, the bobcats and the other cats that are out there. These are these are the domestic cats. There are a lot of them. The uh, second one about the efficacy of intense blue light in treating bacterial sepsis in mice. I'm leaning towards this one being true too. I'm uh, rarely very surprised by stuff that they're doing, experiments with mice. Uh, the intense blue light treatment I've never heard of before, but yeah, why not? So that leaves, in the end here, this three-dimensional microchip. So transferring the information in three dimensions. Just the whole process of how microchips work and transfer of information. I'm a, not familiar with it. So I'm sort of left with this as the last one left in the bag. I'm going to have to go with it, sort of, I think, like Rebecca, Rebecca did. So microchip
4: fiction. Okay, Bob, the three-dimensional microchip. Um, yeah, it's about goddamn time they made one of these. As a matter of fact, I thought they kind of already did. So, uh, yeah, I'm gonna say that, that, uh, I just wouldn't think the technical hurdles would be that huge. And, uh, what took them so long? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with that one. Efficacy of intense blue light. It, uh, I, I could kind of justify this if you've got really intense blue, you know, kind of short wavelength and sepsis, blood infection, you know, maybe if you shine it on, um, on veins, that are near the surface of the skin, they can kind of get through the skin and have have an effect on the bacteria, so I can kind of kind of see that as well. The cat thing, yeah, I could see cats whacking tons of animals, but the the numbers the that range is just seems high to me eight to twenty four billion you know maybe less, even eight billion just seems like a crazy, crazy number, so I think you I think you might have tweaked that a bit and raised it in order of magnitude or so, but um. And yeah, you usually don't do—you don't really mess around like that—but the numbers are high enough where it's just outside of a range I'm comfortable in. So I'm going to say the cat is fiction. And Jay.
0: Okay, so we have uh, the one about the cats. I know that cats kill a lot of animals. You know, when you say domestic, I'm thinking—you know—a lot, of, a lot of domestic cats are are indoor, or hopefully they're they're strictly indoor cats. I don't see why that is that crazy. I mean, at first I'd have to know how many domestic cats are there. How many? You know you know i have no idea i can only count the amount i have in my house but i would imagine that there are <laughs> Three. It's somewhere between 2
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Okay>. 8
0: billion <laughs> no, this is like one of those times where i wish i could do quick math in my head but i, I just don't think i'm going to um to underplay how how evil and quick killing cats can be they go out and I, steve you and i have talked about this they go out they hunt all day and they come back home uh, second one looks like Rebecca. I just don't know. I've never, I didn't read about this. I don't know anything about this bacterial sepsis and mice and the blue lights and all this shit. You know, they're wearing the beta blocker sunglasses and all that crap. I don't know. But what I absolutely do know is that Steve did not make up the third one because that's not just something you make up. Steve would have to have read an article that said in 10 years we're going to have three dimensional chips. But I actually know a, a little bit above average about processors, how they work. You know, I know a lot of companies are working on, um, technology for, uh, the thumb drive stuff. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago that they came out with a one terabyte thumb drive? I think that that one is absolutely science. And I think that, uh, my only comment on that would be that if they did do it, it's, it is a huge breakthrough. It's gonna, it's gonna lead to a lot of awesome stuff. It's like adding layers onto something that was traditionally, you know, I only ever knew microchips of being a single layer. They don't go tiered like that. Something's telling me that that's true and the, the blue light one, because I don't know anything about it, I, I'm going to say that one is the fake. And now I will roll the proverbial die. It's not proverbial. It exists. I just
1: wanted to
5: say that. Okay. Yeah.
1: Two. Two. So we have a good spread this week. So I guess I could take, take these in order. So number one, a new study concludes that domestic cats are the number one threat to U.S. wildlife, killing between 8 and 24 billion animals annually. Only Bob thinks this one is the fiction, correct? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this one is science. Uh, yep. It's uh-huh. it going to be
3: my second choice for this one being the fiction.
1: But. Yep. They kill uh, between 1.4 and 3.7 billion birds and 6.9 and 20.7 billion mammals Annually. Yeah, I read it. Yeah. I've read though that in, <sighs>
2: I read in a previous study just not too long ago, like a couple of months ago, uh, that they don't actually hunt all the time, that they, they only eat like one animal every couple of days or something like that. And that they, otherwise they like play with things every now and again and kill them that way. But for the most part, but the, don't this really recent
1: study, uh, which was, uh, Published in Nature Communications, says that previous estimates were probably a gross underestimate of the number of animals that cats are killing. Uh, this includes cats as pets, stray cats, and feral cats. The strays and ferals kill about three times as much as the pet cats do. That's probably because a lot of pet cats are indoor cats. Indoor cats, um, but you know, still indoor cat. I mean, pet cats that are allowed to go outdoors are still contributing significantly to the overall slaughter. Slaughter, and uh, they said that um, this is not part of this current study, but, but when they were discussing it, that c- that uh, domestic cats are blamed for the global extinction of thirty-three species.
4: Whoa! Wow! Uh,
1: generally, what happens is humans move into an area, and one of the things that goes along with humans are yep, cats, and they're, then they're cats. just devastating. Yeah. I wonder which has
2: done more bad: cats or rats? Yeah, I was wondering about that too. Which but, is don't, but don't
3: they bring the cats to d- to help keep the rats away? Isn't that the one of the reasons why?
1: Yeah, but rats are also like they will eat eggs of ground-dwelling birds and whatnot, or they'll eat the young, you know. Yeah, and and rats usually come first, like on ships and things like that. But this study found that the cats are a top threat to U.S. wildlife. Part of of, uh, mitigating this is going to be controlling the feral cat population. But for pet owners, they say, you know, keep, as Rebecca said, keep your cat indoors. They said if you do... Have an outdoor cat. You know what they recommended you do? What? Don't kill it. Put a bell on it. Put a collar oh. and bell on it. Oh, because that will make awesome. it much less successful at hunting.
2: Yeah. Oh, uh-huh. that's awesome. <laughs>
1: Literally, bell the cat.
2: But also, just keep it inside. Uh, or you just, just keep it, keep it cries a little bit at first. <laughs> yeah. Get it'll it. Get cat. over Beat it, it. It's a cat.
1: <laughs> but I could see, like, if you live on a farm, you know, and you want the cat to run around outside, and and you do want it to kill mice and rats and stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Just but they sure also kill
4: rabbits. squirrels. Make sure you have deaf mice. Chipmunks. Rab- rabbits. Bunnies.
1: Chipmunks, yeah, rabbits. And, very and, small and, rocks. And birds. I mean, they're killing a ton of birds. Like uh the American mm. robin is apparently very susceptible to Ew. cat kills. Yep. As much as I am an advocate
2: for indoor cats, I have to admit that when I was a kid, I had an outdoor cat that was an absolute master murderer. <laughs> <laughs> like she killed everything <laughs> oh, and would drop awesome. it. In front of my window. They're good hunters. I have seen the bowels of every small animal in
1: (laughs) South Jersey woodlands. Cool. (laughs) All (laughs) right. Spread out on my Let's move on to number two. Scientists have demonstrated the efficacy of intense blue light in treating bacterial sepsis in mice. Jay and the die think that this one is the fiction. And this one is Fiction. The fiction. Aha, Damn, we are uh, correct. Uh, we are correct. Good job. <laughs> good job, Die. Good j- yeah. <laughs> Jay. However, this is based upon a, a study that did look at the efficacy of blue light, specifically 425 nanometers. And, but this was a, this was for skin infections, specifically Pseudomonas aeruginosa, which is a very, um, resistant type of bacteria. This is a small sort of proof of concept study did Not really a proof of efficacy, just sort of, it looked at, in an animal model, untreated animals with the infection. And those treated, all of, uh, 82% of the control animals that were not treated died, whereas um, all of the animals treated with the blue light survived. You know, this is uh being studied as an alternative to antibiotics because of the... You know the development of antibiotic resistance in bacteria is a huge problem. Sucks. Yeah, and you know, in fact, some people think we're head- we're rapidly heading towards the post antibiotic era where there's going to be multiple resistant bacteria that just to fend off anything we can throw at them. So, looking for non antibiotic mechanisms of uh, killing bacteria is helpful. This could certainly be used as a decontaminant. But what this study showed was that it was, you can use it for skin and soft tissue infections and it's safe at intensities that are less than what would cause skin damage. So interesting, interesting if, and I thought about the whole sepsis thing, I mean, would enough of it penetrate deeply enough through the tissue that it could get down to the blood and kill bacteria in the blood? Probably not, but that wouldn't be impossible. All of this means that scientists have created the first three-dimensional microchip is science. Uh, They finally did it. Hooray! Yeah. So, Bob, I agree with you. This is 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 the kind of thing we've been reading about for a long time. I I, I did not think that they had already done it. But (laughs) uh, what I didn't realize, though, is what the hurdles were. Like you said, Bob, why haven't we done this already? And the reason is they needed to come up with a way of kicking the electrons up to the higher layers, right? And they said that the the only uh, mechanisms that we had for doing that would have been less efficient than just using a regular chip i mean there was no gain in function or efficiency or anything just you know, because it was too hard to do that but professor russell Cowburn, a lead researcher in a, in a recent study published in i believe it was in nature yeah published in nature they figured out a way to do it using spintronics you guys familiar with spintronics
4: oh yeah yeah, so this no. is
1: using the magnetic moment of the electron rather than its charge in order to code the information. They found a way to efficiently, like, create kind of the staircase, they're calling it, uh, that can move these, the, ma- the magnetic moments to higher and lower levels or layers in a layered three-dimensional chip. And they actually built one.
4: Awesome. Yeah. It
1: awesome. So mm-hmm. if, uh, this, again, this is a, the kind of, you know, research lab production, if they can figure out how to make this something that would scale up to manufacturing, this could be, you know, the next generation of microchips, uh, with a huge increase in capacity and efficiency. One thing I didn't realize is, Bob, are you aware that the Spintronics, it, that they're rapidly taking over the memory chips as it is? They're already, no. they're already in use.
4: No, I oh. did not know that. Awesome. Yeah.
1: So yeah, it's something I've been reading about for years as well, but it's good to see that they're actually being used. They're increasingly being used in computers. I think in the next few years, they'll become the standard memory chip, Spintronic chips. Wow. So, yeah, and this like, apparently is the, is the pathway to the three-dimensional chip, chip we've been reading about for years as well. Sweet. Now, just to check, I, I did a search to see if, because you know, whenever I say the first, you know, I'm always vulnerable to, oh, no, a year ago, you know, these guys made a three-dimensional chip. But I cu- all I could say is I couldn't find one. And they're saying it's the first one. So if they're accurate in characterizing it as the first one, and, and, I, and I couldn't find anything to contradict that, but if anyone does, just let me know. Don't we'll, worry. We'll I won't it.
2: be appealing this science or fiction decision.
1: Yeah, I'm just saying, you know. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't find one, but somebody I accept my law. Who's probably an expert in this will let me know if, if I'm missing something. Oh, All yeah. right. But, Jaffe, solo victory for you this week. Good job. Well done. Not solo well done. at all, Steve. Well, if, you know, you, end the <laughs> you and the die. You and the die. We <laughs> accept to our award. That thing. Two
3: of
0: a kind.
1: Well, Jay, do you and the die have a quote for us this week?
0: Um, I do, but Steve, the die doesn't have a brain. I don't know what oh. I'm talking about. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, I have a very short but very good quote this week, and it's a quote from Albert Einstein. <laughs> Einstein. Einstein? Uh, Einstein. Einstein? Einstein. 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 Yeah, Steen. Um, Einstein, and the quote is Everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm. Albert yeah. Einstein! Apparently,
3: he didn't go to the UpGoer5 <laughs> website yeah. when he said that. <laughs> right? Uh, less simple. Said, less maybe simple. Not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Okay, not that simple, you would have said.
1: One quick announcement. It's time for Girl Scout cookies, and you may not be aware of the fact that you can donate money to the Girl Scouts to give to send boxes of cookies to our forward-deployed troops. So if you want to donate to the Girl Scouts but don't want to get fat eating their delicious cookies, you can simply donate money to the, to the troops. If you don't have a Girl Scout in your life that can hook you up, then go to Neurological Blog, and there is an entry there from February 2nd with a link to a PayPal account where you can donate money for Girl Scout cookies through my daughter who is in the Girl Scouts. So thanks in advance to anyone who chooses to, to donate. My daughter thanks you. The Girl Scouts thank you. And I'm sure that our hungry troops thank you as well. Thank you for joining me this week, everyone.
2: Thank you, This you, was fun. Thank You're you
1: welcome. And until <laughs> next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe.
0: The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced
3: by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the contact us form on the website or send an email to info at If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice.
0: Encephalo- encephalo- encephalopathy. <laughs> encephalopathy. <laughs> encephalopathy. <laughs> encephalopathy. <laughs> encephalopathy. 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 We're so
4: gonna, we're so gonna hear this next December.
0: Encephalopathy. Uh, I said it. I said it. Encephalopathy. <laughs> encephalopathy. Encephalopathy. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yep. Thank you, sir. Do you want to re-record that, Steve, or what?